Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and know that you are welcome. Yes, yes, you hit the right bell. This is The Nook. I am Lawrence Santoro, and if you're here for a brace of tales to terrify, you have come to the right place and have arrived at the right time. And yes, somewhere nearby is Mahler, the ink-black cat of The Nook. He usually hovers in the dark until such times as you put your foot down and take a forward step. Or when you're settled in, he might just snuggle in next to you, just a darkness with fur upon it. And yes, it is, it is dark tonight. Tonight we are fully candlelit. It's for effect, to amplify mood, to put the scent of melting tallow and carbonizing wick into the air, that to tease the sense of smell back to life, after what must have been a chilly, chilly walk, yes? Yes, but only chilly tonight. The real cold, the real weather this week was earlier. We had snow this week, finally, finally, lots of it, and wind, of course. It is that city, that of wind. And on Tuesday last, walking about morning, day, evening, and night was to have small Invisible people tossing tiny wet snowballs into your face, pelting you. You could almost hear them strike you. 
was quite nice, actually, and sadly, a rare experience for these now warm and dry winters here in Chicago. However, disrobe, unscarf, demitten, find your snack of choice and pour a warm beverage or fix a cool drink and settle down, because we have another two-tail night tonight. Oh, yes, sorry, I meant to call your attention to it. Our wall art, uh, we're in a kind of time loop here in the nook. We're sort of stuck with that nasty-looking gray-blue fellow who should be en route to the dentist. He's been heading that way since, well, February. <laughs> yes, tales to terrifies art and artist wrangler. The amazing Skitsienski has been laid up for a few weeks with a sadly damaged paw and hasn't been able to play. Or, for that matter, alas, to work either for us or for himself. Alas, alas. I hope he's mending, knitting together again. For us, well, we'll muddle along, just close our eyes and pretend that there's something new and horrid up there on the wall. Yes? <laughs> Maybe when we open our eyes, there will be. Yes? But seriously... Be better soon, Skeet. We want you out playing and gambling with the rest of the boys and girls of the night. So all the best to you. Now, where was I? Ah, yes, Chicago, the Nook. Oh, did I mention? Buy the book. Go to our site, http colon slash slash tales to terrify dot com slash. Click the Buy the Book button and buy the book. Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Do it quick before it's time for us to think about Volume 2. And while you're on the site, you might consider making a one-time donation to Tales to Terrify, or you could, of course, become a regular monthly subscriber and help keep us in chips, dip, beverage, cat treats, bandwidth. Hmm? Okay. And now, quick as that, fiction. Rene Carter Hall writes fantasy and soft science science fiction. She makes the occasional excursion into dark fantasy, to literary fiction, and every now and then she'll turn out a story for children or young adults. And whenever they get a chance, she says, talking animals slide into her stories. Well, tonight we have an animal, but it's not quite a talking animal. Not quite a talking animal for children, anyway. Her work has been influenced by tellers of tales in several media. These include Beatrix Potter, Steven Spielberg, Ray Bradbury, Jim Henson, Chuck Jones, Brian Jacques, Gene Roddenberry, Stephen King, et al. Her short stories have appeared in various print, electronic, and audio publications, as well as several anthologies. Here, without further fuss and feathers, is Rene Hall's The Horseman. birth was not going well. 
watched on a black and white closed circuit monitor as the dapple gray mare, Carolina Moon, strained and panted through what should have been the shortest and final stage of labor. Nothing was happening, and that wasn't good. He scrubbed his face with his hands, feeling two days' worth of stubble. He'd hoped that having a new life to look after, a knobby-kneed foal to run around the pasture, would somehow begin to heal him. But so far, everything was just a reminder of why Katie should have been there. She would have known exactly what to do now when he didn't. For one brief, bitter moment, he wished he could just turn the monitor off and walk away from all of it, out of the house and down the long driveway and then wherever, anywhere he could forget. But that place didn't exist. And he could never leave Carolina, of course. She'd been Katie's horse, the only part of her he had left now. He joked sometimes that she loved the mare more than him, and she'd grin back at him and say something like, Of course I do. She smells better, for one thing. He realized that his hands were clenched. He'd grown so used to the anger that it was simply there now, essential and unnoticed, like the breath held tight in his chest. If he waited any longer, he could lose both Carolina and the foal, and he didn't think he could stand that. Not now. He was headed for the phone to call the vet when he caught movement on the monitor from the corner of his eye. A dark, wet shape was emerging as Carolina pushed. He grabbed the battery-powered lantern and raced to the stable, his breath steaming in the April night. Halfway there, he heard the mare scream. He had never heard a horse make a sound like that, not even ones that were panicked or in pain. It was a long, shrill, desperate cry. His skin prickled as he pushed the stall door open. The straw beneath the mare was soaked with blood. Too much blood. His first impulse was to run back to the phone. Damn it, he should have brought it out here with him, but the mare's breaths were shallow and spaced further and further apart. And as he knelt over her, stroking her neck, he knew there wouldn't be enough time for the vet to get there, much less do anything. Oh, God, I'm sorry, he said. Not sure whether he was apologizing to Carolina or Katie or himself. I'm sorry. He said it over and over, and then she wasn't breathing, and then she was still. He sat there for a long moment, the emptiness of it pulling him in, draining him. He might have cried, but he'd cried so much before that it seemed there was nothing left in him for tears. At last he turned to the foal, expecting it to be dead too. It wasn't. It was struggling its way clear of the birth sack, its dark coat wet and tousled. It was male, a little cold. He reached for one of the old towels he'd left there the day before, then stopped and looked closer at the foal. Its coat was not merely dark, but black, and it looked oddly glossy in spots, more than he would have expected for it just being wet. As the foal tried to stand, he moved the lantern a little closer. What the hell? It had scales, he saw now. Ebony patches shining here and there among the horsehair. The hooves were wrong as well, oddly cloven and pointed. The head was the right shape, but its eyes were almost red, and its mouth... He swore and backed up fast. The damn thing had fangs curving out from its upper lip. The foal got to its feet, far steadier than a newborn should have been. 
its eyes focused on him, and for a moment he knew nothing but that strange gaze and his own blood roaring in his ears. It was when the forked tongue slipped from the foal's mouth that he turned and ran. Back in the house, hands shaking, he cupped cold water at the kitchen sink and splashed his face once, twice, three times. When that didn't work, he took a knife from the drawer and pressed his thumb against the point. He drew in a sharp breath as it nicked the skin, but he did not wake up. Okay, he said, his voice sounding far away. Fine. They kept the rifle over the mantel. It was kind of a joke, really, the kind Katie would make about them living out here in the wilderness, needing a gun to keep the varmints off the farm. When the farmhouse had central air and he could see the Lowell's house from the kitchen window, he took the rifle down and tried to remember where they'd put the bullets. He finally found them in the kitchen junk drawer, shoved in the back behind the stray rubber bands, a box of toothpicks, and several sizes of batteries. Whatever it was, he told himself, it would probably be dead by the time he got back out there. It was probably already dead. Things like that happen sometimes. Throwbacks, or weird mutations. Maybe there'd been something off of Carolina's feed. Hormones or some chemical crap they were pumping into everything these days. He went to the monitor. Carolina's bright shape was still there, taking up most of the image. The foal was there too, still alive, standing over her. It was nosing in her body, and beneath his revulsion he felt a certain vague pity. No doubt it was trying to suckle. It bent its head to her belly, and no. No, he hadn't seen that. He stared at the screen. The foal drew its head up again, and he saw the sudden dark gash in the mare's light gray coat. The foal had something in its mouth, and as he watched, it tossed its head back a bit, mouth gaping, like a lizard swallowing. The foal spread its long forelegs, bent its head down again, tearing off another mouthful of flesh. His stomach clenched, and he tasted sour coffee in the back of his throat. He swallowed hard, gripped the rifle in damp palms, and went back out to the stable. The foal did not look up when he entered. It kept tearing at the mare's flesh, a wet, thick sound followed by gulps as it swallowed. He cocked the rifle. The foal turned at the sound and met his gaze again. It looked like it knew what he meant to do, but there was no fear in its eyes. When he took aim, tightened his finger on the trigger. In one swift strike, the foal lunged and sank its fangs into his arm, clamping down through the flannel shirt. Pain lanced through his arm, and he struggled to throw the creature off, trying to get at an angle where he could shoot it. At last, the foal let go, scuttling back to the far corner of the stable, behind Carolina. His arm burned all the way up to the shoulder. How had the thing moved that fast? He'd been looking right at it, and he hadn't even seen... Never mind. It was off him, and the gun was still loaded. Panning, he leveled the barrel at the foal and pulled the trigger. Click. He took a few steps back, keeping an eye on the foal, and checked the rifle. The shell was still there, everything as it should be. He tried again. Click. The foal watched him, its gaze steady and deep. The world spun and tilted around him, and he stumbled backwards out of the stable. It felt like his bones were on fire. A 
goddamn thing probably gave me an infection. He wasn't sure where the rifle was, but he didn't have it and didn't want to go back to look for it. Bacteria or venom or God knows what. His chest felt tight by the time he got back to the house. He fumbled through the kitchen cabinet, knocking over bottles of Katie's vitamins he still hadn't thrown away, and managed to get the top off the aspirin. He swallowed too dry and was halfway to the phone when he passed out. When he woke, he was still on the kitchen floor, and several minutes passed before he could remember what had happened. He picked himself up slowly, testing, but besides his back and knees being stiff, he felt fine. It was dark outside. He squinted at the clock on the stove, not believing the numbers. 9.13 at night. He'd been out the whole day. He gingerly pulled back his shirt sleeve. The twin punctures were deep and neat, and around them the skin was raw as if he'd been burned. But the wounds didn't hurt, not even when he pressed them, though he still had feeling in the skin. He bandaged his arm anyway, tearing the gauze off with his teeth. The monitor was still on, though the camera's battery should have been dead by now. The mare's white ribs curved out from what remained of her body. He could not see the foal, and he shivered at the thought of the thing getting out of the stable. He turned on the back porch light and went out to the shed, searching through the snow shovels and rakes before he found the axe. The weight of it felt good in his hands solid and simple and real. He rounded the house and stopped. Light was flickering from the front pasture. Fire. He broke into a run. As he got closer, he saw that the grass itself wasn't burning. Instead, a bonfire rose from the bales of hay he'd left there months before. He'd meant to take them into the barn, but, well, it was another thing that hadn't happened since the accident. A dark shape darted around the orange flames, He clutched the axe handle a little tighter. It was no longer a foal. There was no question it was the same creature, but it was as large as a yearling now, grown strong on its mother's flesh, and it was, well, there was nothing else he could call it. It was dancing and tightening circles around the fire, picking up its hooves, kicking its heels, churning the earth as it pounded out rhythms in double time, triple time, cadences he'd never heard before. Sparks rose where each hoof struck the ground, and for a moment it looked as if the fire was coming not from the hay, but from within the earth itself. The colt slowed and stopped. Its coat was lathered with sweat, but it did not seem tired. It turned its head and held his gaze for a long moment. Something in him could feel that rhythm continuing, even though the hoofbeats had ceased. It was something ancient, something passed into legend. And even as he stood shaking, his own sweat chilling his skin, he fought the desire to go to the fireside himself, to dance before it as men might have in elder days, when speech was gesture and reason only a dream. The fire was dying down. The colt shook itself and lowered its head, as if to graze on the embers. He turned and walked slowly back to the house. When he got back to the kitchen, he was still holding the axe, and he looked down at it dully for a moment, trying to remember what it was for. The distant light burned in the black square of the kitchen window. 
and he thought of the fire again before he remembered the Lowell's porch light, the one they kept on even during the day. Was Frank asleep? He hoped not. He hoped the bastard hadn't slept since that night. It was what he deserved. He stared at the house, the same familiar rage rising in him like bile. If it were possible to set the house on fire by sheer will, he would have expected to see flames licking at the shutters. He hadn't been there when she died. He hadn't even known. He would have thought that loving a person more than a decade meant that you would know, somehow, when they needed you. Know when something was wrong. Just know. Wasn't that what people talked about? But he hadn't felt a thing. Neither had she. That's what they all tried to tell him. It had been quick, and he was supposed to think that was a blessing. That it was so much better that she hadn't suffered. Hadn't had the kind of death everyone feared, with hospital monitors and tubes, a slow march of pain. But at least then, he might have had some warning. Might have had some chance to prepare himself. To know that what he was saying was being said for the last time. He couldn't remember what he'd said to her last. He was afraid it was something about the electric bill. He had lain awake several nights trying to remember, afraid to remember. He couldn't remember what she had said either. It was the last time he'd ever seen her alive, and he wanted to enclose that memory in crystal, keep it safe. And he couldn't even remember, and he hated that, hated himself for not paying more attention. He hadn't seen Frank since the sentencing, apparently drinking so much he could barely walk, getting behind the wheel anyway and slamming into someone at 70 miles an hour on a rural road could be paid for with 60 days in jail and a smattering of community service hours afterward. Saying it wasn't fair was obvious. Of course it wasn't. If it had been fair, he would have been resting a hand comfortingly on the arm of Frank's widow as she dabbed at her eyes with a handkerchief, telling her that we don't know why these things happen, but there's a reason we just can't see that things are meant to be this way. He realized he was still holding the axe. He forced himself to release it, hands aching as he propped it against the wall and went to bed. When he woke up, it was dark again, or dark still. He felt his stubble and decided it was the same night. The monitor in the kitchen was finally black, and he turned it off. He unwrapped the gauze around his arm. The punctured ones were almost gone, just two purplish black marks there, each about the size of a dime. The skin around them was less raw, but a set of odd welts had risen, curving slashes of raised flesh, as if he'd been burned with a brand. He touched them hesitantly, but it didn't hurt. He went outside. The pasture was gray under a gray sky. In the stable, nothing was left of the mare but bones and twisted hide. Her skull stared back at him. He felt the horse's presence before he turned and saw it. It was grown now, a stallion, a twisted mockery of fine equine form, hideous and mesmerizing. It stood as if waiting for him, tossing its head eagerly as he came near. It smelled of horse sweat, moldy hay, and of wet leaves and rotten meat, of something burned, something long dead. It was beautiful. 
He reached his hand out to stroke its neck. Steam rose when he touched its flesh, but he felt no pain. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He found the tack where Carolinas had been kept. At first, the saddle and bridle looked like black leather, but the texture was strangely pebbled and thin, the hide of nothing he knew on earth. The bit looked like old bone. The horse stood calmly while he saddled it and slipped the bridle on. The brand on his flank matched the raised flesh on his arm. He traced the marks with his fingers felt himself smile. He didn't know what the symbols said. He knew what they meant. The creature was part of him as he was a part of it. The self-same darkness that he claimed to them both. The horse snorted and pawed the ground. He knew what it wanted. He wanted it too. He led the horse out of the stable. The sun would be rising soon. All he could see of it now was a smudge of lighter gray at the horizon. When he mounted up, the stallion went forward, needing no command, and as dawn broke, they rode out of the pasture together, heading for the house just up the hill, the one where the light still burned. Thank you for that, Renee. Short as it is, Horseman is about everything you can ask of a horror tale. It has a creature, strange and terrifying, but with a sense of purpose, a sense of rightness about it. 
and there is a central human figure who suffers and whose life will be forever changed by the events of the tale. And she leaves the ending up to you. After all, this isn't called the horse or the foal. It is horseman. Renee Carter-Hall lives in West Virginia with her husband Jeff and their cat Bijou. By day, she is a medical transcriptionist, just the thing for such a one who is given to perfectionism as she says she is. And when she isn't writing, reading, or trying to figure out what the doctor is saying, she enjoys creating visual art. Hmm. Maybe I should ask her about the nook wall sometime. Hmm. But I verge on digression. Her other loves include cats, both large and small, journals and blank books, since most of her first drafts are handwritten. She also loves tea and new age and world music. Again, Renee, thank you for the horseman. Love to see more from you. Horseman was narrated for us tonight by Stephen Howell. Stephen Thomas Howe is an old friend of ours here in the Nook. He is a career soldier, and when not on deployment, he lives in South Carolina with his wife and two sons. By day, he occupies a tiny cubicle in a massive army headquarters, and by night, he writes speculative fiction and plans his next escape. Thanks again, Steve. And, by the way, welcome back. All the best to you. More fiction now. And next we have a tale... Well, you'll hear. The story verges on crime fiction with some twists, so I don't want to spoil it by saying too much. The story is by one fellow named Copper Smith. About Mr. Smith, I know very, very little. He's been known to write uncomfortably clever prose under a panoply of pen names, such as Copper Smith. Under that moniker, he writes what he calls tawdry crime fiction. He is also the shadowy figure behind the blog Uppercut Avenue. And as Donnie Magazino, he pleads guilty to writing the erotica blog libidostan.com. Of himself, he says, he is a confused Minnesotan who enjoys playing the mandolin and referring to himself in the third person. Of his fiction, he asks us to imagine a smash-up between Raymond Chandler's 52 Buick and Chester Himes' 74 Cadillac. Here now is Coppersmith's We Can't Dance Together. We've got nothing in common. She's young enough to be my daughter. The names that mean everything to me, Aretha Franklin, Al Green, Otis Redding, are, to her, ancient history, ghost of hit parades past. And I call her 19, because I don't even know her name. Apart from that she's perfect, because she calls me every night at exactly three minutes to midnight, about an hour into my late night shift at WSOL, and we swap secrets in the dark like lonely co-conspirators. I know about the kidney-shaped birthmark just above her ass. 
She knows about how I always hated hunting with my dad, but did it anyway, because it was just what a man does. I know about the crush she had on her physics teacher. She knows about my delirious first night back from the army. The marriage proposal to Stephanie. Stephanie's surprise for me. She was pregnant by another guy. The decision I made for both of us. Put it up for adoption. And the special place in hell that surely awaits me for casting that kid off to a life without a mother. Tonight she's in a mischievous mood. What if you come home one night to find your beloved bride gone forever? What do you mean gone, I ask? I mean, whatever you want it to mean. Packed her bags and left. Missing. Belly up on the living room carpet. Some nights I wouldn't know whether to weep or celebrate. I wrote celebrate. Really? Really? We'd be free. Free to go off together and start a new life. Free to be what we were meant to be. Spoken like a true 19-year-old. Idealistic. Naive. Living in the opium world without side effects. This is simple. Trust me, I can make it happen. This is the way we talk. We talk this way because it's reckless and fun. We talk this way because it stabs a gaping wound in the bellies of our mundane lives. This dangerous game gives us something to cherish, a secret to keep. I tell myself, it really doesn't mean anything, really. Does it? My wife Stephanie finds the note. It's nestled in the wedge of her car doors, but clearly meant for me. It puzzles her, and I pretend to be in the dark as well. The day is soon upon us. We will be free. Nineteen. I try to explain to Stephanie that radio DJs get all kinds of delusional fans, and she nods her head like a kid being talked out of her milk money. There's a distance at the dinner table tonight, a quiet that circles us like a vulture. The danger isn't fun anymore. The phone rings the same time it always rings, but I'd leap out of my body's wrapping just the same, picking up the receiver, a child with something foreign and frightening in his hand. An answer. Nineteen? What if I told you things will be happening tomorrow? Stop this. It's all I can say. It's too late. The wheels are in motion. This is getting crazy. No, it's getting perfect. What does that mean? Oh, come on. You know exactly what that means. You know that feeling of two people meant to be joined forever. That feeling that nothing else makes sense in the world without the other? Yes, I feel that way about my wife. Bullshit. Are you forgetting who you're talking to? I know everything about you two. Separate vacations, sex every eight weeks, arguments over everything and nothing, no kids, no passion, no hope for things getting better. Just stop it. There is no stopping it, Mike. It's done. I slam down the phone and tell the invisible audience they've been listening to something from Etta James. Once Wilson Pickett bloods the airwaves, I vow to contact the police. Eventually. No sense setting another dust-up in motion over something that will probably turn out to be a hoax. A cruelly unfunny joke. I stalk home, chanting, There's nothing to worry about, and almost believing it.
don't like guns. As a kid, I hated having those clunky hunting rifles shoved into my mitts and told I should love it. I hated that, and I hated it, and I hated whenever that said about me. But I stepped inside Ray's firearms, endure the country music screeching from the speakers above and purchase a snub-nosed revolver because that's just what a man does. As far as the radio station knows, I'm at home fighting off the worst flu of my life. But really, I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot of Ray's firearms, motionless as the Delphonics wash over me and remind me what it was like when the world kind of made sense. On the drive home, every hooded face becomes a menace, every unfriendly glance a reason to reach for the revolver in my glove compartment. I lurch into the driveway, and just when breathing seems like a good idea again, I'm slapped into wide-eye alertness by my screaming cell phone. This would be a wonderful time to have my evening interrupted by a telemarketer. But no. Nineteen? Hello, Mike. Something in her voice sings with too much joy. Too great a sense of achievement. So before stepping out of the car, I reach into my glove compartment. How are you? I ask, hoping to stall her, maybe fish out information. I'm wonderful. Just waiting for you. The revolver feels cold in my hand, like a dead thing waiting at burial. Why are you waiting for me, 19? Don't be silly. You know we can't do this thing without you. I tuck the gun into my pants, clumsy like an unrehearsed actor on a cop show, step out, up the driveway, to the door. What thing are we doing? She sighs, like we've been through this a million times, maybe in her mind we have. I open the door to a silence that bangs at my eardrums. Have you ever been lonely, Mike? Or the voice isn't only coming through the cell phone. She's inside the house. Answer me, goddammit. I try to follow the voice, but find only definitely tied to the living room chair. Her voice is frozen in mid-scream. She breathes in panic spasms. Something happens to your insides when you see the face of a loved one twisting into something horrific, something unrecognizable. Everything ugly and unpleasant and annoying about them floats away, and you're left with an urgent need to act. You need to save that rare bird from being shot from the sky. Nineteen charges in from the shadows, gun drawn, eyes enlarged with rage. Answer me, she demands. Have you ever known true loneliness? The feeling of being incomplete, unfinished. I haven't, I reply. I have no tricks, no exit strategies. Well, I've never known anything else. She wraps an arm around my wife, draws her closer. Her hand dangles for a second. Not quite enough time for me to make a move. So I wait. Because she has to drop her guard and make herself a target at some point. You have no idea what kind of emptiness I have inside. She's crying now, unhinged, spiraling into madness. But make no mistake, she's going to shoot my wife. So I have to act. Maybe she sees the bulge under my untucked shirt. Maybe she doesn't. What I'm about to do is the best for all concerned, she says. She steps into a corner, slams a wall. I hate that this has to happen, but 
I just want to make myself whole. That's all. My hand darts to my waist, into my pants. I'm pretty fast for a novice. But she's faster. She turns and sends a bullet to my ribcage before I get the damn thing settled into my hand. I curl to the floor with a whimper and an angry thud. She yanks Stephanie by the hair, pulls her away outside. I can only move in the tiny steps of wounded prey. I crawl to the windows and watch my wife's body, drained of everything but a pulse, tossed into the back seat of her car. As they motor into the horizon, I hear nothing but crying. I don't know whose. Maybe my own. I'll live. But it looks like I'll have to live alone. For a while, at least. The police are baffled. They don't understand why this happened, why a middle-aged woman was kidnapped by a teenager she's never met. But they don't know what I know. They haven't added up the clues. Nineteen's obsession with my marriage, her longing for completion. Stephanie's child given up for adoption nineteen years ago. They'll be coming to my hospital room to question me in a matter of minutes. This is going to be awkward. It already embarrasses me to consider how far off the mark I was about nineteen. Harry was casting her as a femme fatale, dark-souled siren hell-bent on digging her claws into a smart, sophisticated older man and dragging him into her world of tumult. Turns out, she was just a lonely nineteen-year-old who wanted her mom back. Thanks, Cupper. I love this story. You know, at first glance, it seems just a straightforward crime tale, the which it is, of course, but it is also a tale of gathering terror, of a fear that seeps in and focuses the life of our central voice. Well done, Cupper. As mentioned, Cupper has parceled his writing out among several personae. As Cupper Smith, he wrote, Woman Seeking Men, and Kitten in the Crosshairs. As his erotic imago, Donnie Magazino, he wrote Catch a Scoundrel by the Tail. So, thanks again for tonight's little chill, copper. And well done, Jeff Lewis. I love having a tale like this one just breathed into my ear. Excellent. Your narration forces us to lean in a bit, to listen closely. Yeah. Jeff is a bibliophile and says that when he's not reading or collecting books, he does whatever mathematical modeling and simulation work for a huge semiconductor manufacturer is. Before being lured into the corporate world, Jeff worked for the National Optical Astronomy Observatories and the Kitt Peak Observatory. And upon that mountaintop, he spent years messing up his circadian rhythms, he says. In addition to reading, writing, and mathematically modeling semiconductors, and I await that swimsuit issue every year, he collects and consumes wine, he travels, and bothers the four cats that share the house with him. 
His wife, tolerant and understanding, is a lawyer whom he says spends a great deal of time pulling him into debates that he has no chance of winning. Thanks again, Jeff. I look forward to more from you as well. Oh, yeah, one more thing as you think about leaving. Control. That's K-O-N-T-R-O-L-L. Hungarian film, shot entirely in the Budapest underground. The pulp author B.C. Bell and his wife Darlene, as well as Cecilia Mahler and I, watched Control this past weekend on the recommendation of an old, old chum, Steve Bayai, a writer of rare gift, now, alas, out of the horror field and into other playgrounds of fictive passion. At any rate, Steve recommended it, saying, what what was it he said? Yes, uh, let me read this. He said, I am always appreciative of stories with terminally flawed characters in miserable environments, completely devoid of hope, whose sense of humor consists of laughing at the despair of themselves and others. Then he added that it reminded him of when he spent six months working the night shift at a Walmart in Indiana. (laughs) All four of us, to say nothing of the cat— love the film. It is unique. It is quirky, what some might call offbeat. And it gives us a glimpse of a world we've never before seen and a culture that is completely alien to us. And yes, there is terror and laughter and delight and wonder and, of course, a pretty girl in a bear suit. What more could one want? Well, one might want to slip into the tunnels and have a nice foot race with the Midnight Express. (laughs) Just lets you know you're alive. So I recommend it. Control. K-O-N-T-R-O-L-L. And that will be it for the week. Thank you for coming. Our 61st evening together here in the Nook is now at an end, and I would have you be... What? Up and doing, yes, and bright, and yes, chipper. Redon the gear of the season and be homeward bound. We have spoken here on evenings past of the critters that roam the Chicago streets and alleys late at night. Coyote, raccoons, possum, the ubiquitous civic rat. We do from time to time have horses, mostly beneath policemen and almost never in this neighborhood, only when needed, say, to quell crowds when our neighbor, the Chicago Cubs up the street, clinches a pennant race or wins a World Series. Yes, well, so on your walk home, fear no horse of any stamp, haired or hooved or chitinously scaled. There are people, though, abroad in the night, People who may or may not be seeking solace or company or some other closeness with his or her fellow human. Best avoid engagement. Yes? So, have a grand trip through the blackening remnants of this past week's wonderful of snow now scraped and plowed into ridges and berms along the streets and alleys. Have a time indeed on your walk in the sodium-bright night and the shadowed dark of the lesser streets. 
And you have a welcome home awaiting, and a warm bed to slip into, and, of course, you'll have memories of tonight to feed your pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.